So in January, Ariana and I spoke a little bit about uh, unity basics, the grounding principles of this movement that we call unity. And, um, <clears throat> and that was really fun. We talked about affirmative prayer and we talked about healing and all those things that, that make up this movement. And um, this month in February, we're going to turn our attention to what do I believe? What do you believe? And how do you come to know what you believe? And what tips are there for finding out what you believe? Before I get into a couple of questions I want to pose to you to help you think about what you believe, I want to share why I think it's important. Why I think this whole month is crucially important. Uh, The first one is just this opportunity to listen to our deepest selves, our holy centers, the quiet, essential part of our spirit, which will guide us towards wisdom and insight. Here's how John Fox, the poet, put it in his poem, Deeply Listening. When someone deeply listens to you, It is like holding out a dented cup you have had since childhood and watch it fill up with cold, fresh water. When it balances on the top of the rim, you are understood. When it overflows and touches your skin, you are loved. When someone deeply listens to you, the room where you stay starts a new life. And the place where you wrote your first poem begins to glow in your mind's eye. It's as if gold has been discovered. When someone deeply listens to you, your bare feet are on the earth, and the beloved land that seemed distant is now at home within you. The someone is you in this kind of exercise, right? The someone is you. When you have you ever had this experience where you listen to somebody, you deeply listen to them, and um, you don't even say a word, and you just let them speak at their own pace in their own way about whatever's important for them, and the tears begin to flow. Have you ever had that experience? Healing. You know that someone feels heard in that moment. This opportunity to think about our own credo statements is an opportunity for you to listen to yourself in that way and see if tears don't come. As a result, the second reason that it's important to think about your own personal credo statements is um, that it changes your whole perspective. There is a story, maybe it's a myth, whatever it is, it's called the rabbi's gift. You probably have heard it, but I'm going to tell you again. The story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house. The abbot and four others, all 70 years or older, It was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, 
there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in the hermitage. The rabbi's in the woods, the rabbi's in the woods, they would say to one another. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to temple anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. They read parts of the Torah, and they quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It's been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have failed in my purpose. I failed to tell you in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that might save my dying order? No, I am sorry, the rabbi said. There is no advice I can give you. The only thing I can tell you is the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, the monk said, what did the rabbi say? What did the rabbi say? He said nothing. We just wept together and we read Torah. But there was this one thing he said. It was rather cryptic. As I was leaving, he said the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he meant one of us here in the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? He must have meant the abbot. The abbot is a wise man. He probably meant Father Abbot. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. (laughs) Elred is crotchety. Come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's side, when you look back on it, Elred is almost always right, often right. Maybe the rabbi meant Brother Elred. But surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, he's a nobody. But then almost mysteriously, he has this gift of appearing right when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. What do we know? Of course the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't have possibly meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. But suppose he did mean me. Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. (laughs) As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might just be the Messiah. (laughs) 
And on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect as well. Because the forest in which it was situated was so beautiful, it happened that people still came to visit, on occasion, the monastery, to wander along its paths, to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of this place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why they began, they came, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to pray, to play. They began to bring their friends, and their friends brought their friends Then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked to join, and then another and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. What we believe matters and impacts how we journey in this world. As soon as the old monks believed that one of them was the Messiah, everything changed. Everything became new. Their perspective grew and their compassion and insight grew. So when we put to paper our own personal credo, We listen deeply to ourselves, and in listening deeply to ourselves, we come to the source of our wisdom and insight. And as we put down our personal credo, our perspective changes. Everything becomes holy, and even we become the Messiah. All the world is just um, enveloped and holiness, and the sacred. So how do you do this? How do you write a credo? The only thing I'm going to do is offer up some questions for you and some suggestions. The first question, write it down. Write down the question or write down what? (laughs) No, the question. You keep the answer for yourself. What are the spiritually significant events in my life? What are the spiritually significant events in my life? What's happened on this earthly journey that has given me insight? When I was lost at sea, when I didn't know if I would have a relationship or not, when I didn't know if I would finish graduate school or not, There was a bit of belief that never left my side. The belief was this. At the heart of all creation, there is a goodness from which we come, in which we live our fullest, to which we shall at last return. When I was lost at sea, that never left me. 
when things turned out okay, that never left me. That bit of belief was my anchor, was my foundation in good times and bad. What like that endures for you? What is a spiritually significant event in your life? It doesn't have to be big. I think I've told you before that one Thanksgiving, maybe 1997, 1998, something like that, I left the District of Columbia in my little car. It was a beautiful sunny day like today. And I was driving down I-95 to see my friends out in the suburbs. They were having kids. And um, so they moved out to the burbs. And... um, Along the way, I was listening to the Indigo Girls. Remember the Indigo Girls? Yes. And um, I was enveloped in light, man. I was like, I felt such grace and peace, like I belonged in the world. I wasn't having the best day or the best week, but there was something about that moment where I just had this spiritually significant event, and I had a sense of deep belonging. It doesn't have to be big. Moses doesn't have to come from the clouds and strike you with his staff and say, oh, you're it. Um, No, none of that, right? What are the spiritually significant events in your life? How did you become the spiritual person you are today? That's question number two. How How did you end up this way? Number three, what do I see as my spiritual identity? Right? Uh, Mine might be, uh, I'm a goofball with a bit of grace, right? (laughs) Whatever it is, right? Whatever it is for you. What do I see as my spiritual identity or essence? Who are you in this world? If you don't speak it, claim it, express it, we're all going to miss out on it, right? Because you're the only one who can have the visions that you have. The last one is interesting. I think you could spend a lot of time. By the way, I told Connie before this service that we'd probably go long today. I think I, you know, because this is so important, so crucial. I think seven or eight o'clock tonight will we'll be done. So I don't know if... Um, I don't know if you got anything planned or not, but (laughs) the last question, what am I searching for and what am I finding? What have I been looking for and what have I found? What am I searching for and what am I finding? That's, I think, that's that's the foundational first level for a personal credo. Those four questions. I like those four questions. Um, I think they. I think they work pretty well. You know, there are others. There are others, and um, you know, I I ran into a young a young adult at the hospital a couple of weeks ago. He's probably 26, 27, 28. He was visiting somebody up on oncology. And he was reading this big book, you know, he's reading this huge book. And I was like, what are you doing, man? And um, he said, I'm reading this book. I wanted to read it for a long time. What do you do? I said, he said, I'm a graduate student. I'm getting a PhD from Duke. 
And um, in what? Epistemology. And then he lost me. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> but um, I, we started talking. And I was like, he, yeah, I'm, writing, I'm, writing on, uh, I'm writing a dissertation on how we know what we know. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. He had gone to Cambridge, and uh, the one across the pond. And um, he had gone to Cambridge, and he said that their, the, their approach to learning was like this. Your professor would, you would go to see your professor. He'd give you a, a glass of whiskey, and he'd have a glass of whiskey. And um, he'd give you a theme. And for the whole week, you had to think about this theme. And then six days later, you'd send in your paper that you wrote about this theme. And the professor would read it. And then you would just sit there and read it to him or her. And if you got off track, the professor would be like, "Mm -mm, no, 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 that is not going to do. And he'd, you know, she'd pound you a little bit. When we're answering these questions, how great would it be to have somebody who looked at your answers and was like, no, no. No. I know you too well. You can't get away with that. Uh Uh-uh, that's not going to work. Right? So find somebody. Find somebody to be your accountability person. All right. This I believe. I'm going to leave you with this. I believe in jazz, structure and improv, call and response. I believe in healing. I have seen it so often among many of you in my own life. I believe in story, once upon a time. I believe everything you ever needed to know you could, be, could be found in a parable. I believe with the psalmist that we, you and I and all of us, can know the beauty of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe in dreams. I believe in dreamers. I believe in something bigger than me. Call it God, I will. I believe in a God, the name of which is many and never to be known, but one that I call love, love that will never let us go. Fellow sufferer who understands, Holy Spirit, spirit of life, the inner voice of wisdom, the still small voice, the sinner who listens and knows, the God found in the creative moment, the one who calls us to our best selves. I believe more than anything in people. People who grow, people who snore, people who curse, people who build and give, people who fail, people who love and love again, people who know wisdom occasionally. I believe in the Chesapeake Bay and the sea. I believe in the rising sun and my children's smiles. And I believe in you and thou and life. I believe that anyone at any time can know the holy way, the good way in life, that each life is holy for its own sake. We are what we've got. And I believe we have more power and beauty and love and compassion than we'll ever know. Amen, friends.